Thank you, Father, for summertime, the break to our work week and uh, our, our work schedules, the break to our school schedules. It's a, it's a time in which families spend more time together and we get a chance to, to perhaps slow down a little bit, some of us. A time to spend more time with the family in the long evenings, Father, the chance to, to take vacations. Um, well, our, our lives have a pattern and a season that uh, you have constructed to give us a sense of um, the regularity of life that you've programmed for us, Father. And we enjoy these breaks. And, and then when they're over, we enjoy going back to what we've known. This is the rhythm of life. But, Father, it's all directed toward you. The creation speaks to us about you and our timetable of, of life, the way we move through seasons in our own life and in the seasons of a year. They all reflect the regularity of your grace and provision, the fact that this world was created for our sake. And, and yet, Father, at the same time, it's reminding us that there is a countdown, a time clock, that our, our world is coming to an end in a day you appoint. And that the regularity is there, Father, to, to reflect your faithfulness. But in the same way, we must give attention to your word, for you are faithful to keep what you've said. And you tell us, Father, that this world will not last, that we will not last, and that there is an age to come that we must be ready for. And so, Father, as we uh, take time off during the summer, I pray, Father, we haven't taken time off from serving you and following you and knowing you, representing you to a lost and dying world. Give us a heart, Father, to, to take time when, when it's available to us and put it to good use. And as we consider Ruth and the story what, of, of what happened to her and how it pictures greater things yet to come, I hope, Father, you would let it inspire us. And it would cause us to consider whether we've constructed our own lives and patterns of life to the best possible purpose in serving you. Or whether we've, we've got wasted opportunities, Father. I pray that as we study today, as we hear about Boaz and Ruth and about your faithfulness represented in his faithfulness and the grace he extended to her, Father, a picture of what you've done for us, I pray, Father, that we would have a thought of how we're using it where we're putting it to work. Give us new ideas, Father. Give us thoughts on where we serve you better and perhaps things we need to get out of our life to make room for you. Help us, Father, to see these things in new ways this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, our study of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi marches onward. Now that we have seen Ruth receive all the promises that she did from Boaz last week, she's in this new relationship. She's enjoying this new spirit of optimism in the land, I assume anyway, given where she came from. She now has great privilege, great protection, great provision from this man. She has reason for optimism. In fact, she just enjoyed probably the first full meal that she's had in some time when Boaz fed her that grain last week. And as we noted, these two individuals are moving forward now without the presence of Naomi, or so it would seem. While Ruth has benefited from Boaz's kindness in the way that they've come together, Naomi is not a part of this covenant. Naomi was not present when the covenant was formed. And yet, we know that Ruth has attached herself to Naomi. So really, Naomi's opportunity for rest is closely connected to Ruth's situation with Boaz, though at a distance. And speaking of Ruth and Boaz, that's an interesting relationship, isn't it? I mean, he's committed himself to Ruth, but that just begs a bigger question. What are his intentions? I mean, frankly, single men don't establish this kind of relationship with single women just casually 
without some greater expectation. Clearly, Boaz has his eye on Ruth, and yet he's given no indication that he intends to move forward in any further degree in this relationship. So we're all searching to understand a little bit of why has Boaz taken such an interest in Ruth and then left her at arm's length in this relationship. I know it's out of a kindness for her and what she's done for Naomi. He said as much, but it would appear as though there's something deeper going on. And we're going to see a little more of that today and in weeks to come. In chapter 2, verse 14, last week, we learned that Boaz had concluded their meeting with a covenant meal, as I described it last week. Let's return to that point in the text. I'm going to pick up reading again in verse 14, which we looked at last week, and then I'll move forward a bit. So, Ruth 2:14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate, and she was satisfied, and had some left. When she rose to glean... Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. So, after the covenant ritual that we studied last week, and remember the bread and the wine, that was the covenant ritual. Then following that, you had the real meal with the grain. First thing you notice, as we look back on that moment again, is the fact that it says, Boaz served Ruth. Boaz served Ruth. Yet, what we saw happen was, Boaz had just made Ruth a servant, a maid, in the home. So it is surprising, to say the least, that the master of the home would have served one of his own servants. And I'm sure Ruth was shocked, though I wonder if perhaps the others in the house who saw this happen, maybe they weren't quite so surprised. I wonder if Boaz's character was well known among the other servants, and I kind of doubt this is the first time that he's ever thought to to reverse roles in this way. I'm not saying it was common, but I just suspect that Boaz is a man of frequent kindness and consideration of others that would seem to be in keeping with his character. Nonetheless, this is an unusual thing. This is a remarkable thing for the master to serve one of their servants. It's sort of in the same vein as Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Next, we see that he also honors her by giving her this huge portion of grain. So much, in fact, that even after she's satisfied, and I have to imagine she was pretty hungry after working all day in the field, nonetheless, she has something left over. She has leftovers. Now, you may remember the story in Genesis where Joseph invites his brothers to visit him in Egypt, though they don't know that it's Joseph, remember? And they bring Benjamin, the youngest son, because Joseph insisted on it. And at the table, Joseph purposely reversed the norms of the culture by giving the youngest son, Benjamin, more food than he gave the rest of the sons, even though Benjamin, being the youngest, should have had the least honor at the table. Remember he did all of that in the story? And of course, he did it to test the brothers' hearts to see if they would still have jealousy for their younger brother under these circumstances. Well, in the same way that Joseph had a good purpose in providing extra food to one of them, he wasn't just merely giving more because he was sloppy and handing it out. He had a very purposeful intent. Well, similarly, Boaz is being very purposeful here in giving Ruth more food than Ruth can eat at one sitting. It's not an accident. It's not a miscalculation. Nor is it an insignificant detail. 
Boaz is working behind the scenes to bless Naomi through this provision. He expected Ruth to take the leftovers, the excess food, and share it with her mother-in-law. But here again, notice how he goes about this work. He's working through Ruth to bless Naomi. You know, he didn't just give Ruth a normal portion and then come with a Tupperware container and say, by the way, take this home to your mother. He just gave it all to her and let her take care of it in that way. He leaves it to Ruth to transfer the blessing to Naomi. That detail will become significant to us when we return to the story and start looking again at the prophetic significance of what's taking place here. But going back to the story, immediately Boaz begins to fulfill all those promises he had just made to Ruth earlier. It says here that Ruth rose to go again. I want you to understand what's happened between these two verses. Ruth was given shelter in Boaz's home that night in probably the maid's quarters. And the reason would have been because it was late in the day when Boaz found her in the house. At that point, for her to leave the home and walk back to Naomi would probably have meant she'd been traveling after nightfall, at least for part of her journey. And that would have been very dangerous for anyone, let alone a single woman walking alone at night. So Boaz has already begun to fulfill his promise of protection by insisting that she stay in the home that night. And then it says she arose. That's a reference to her getting up in the morning. She would arise the next morning and she just continued at her gleaning the next day in the field. And then that gives Boaz an opportunity to fulfill his promise to provide on top of the earlier one to protect. We see Boaz directing his reapers first to keep an eye out for this woman as she works. In verse 15, Boaz tells the servants, allow Ruth the freedom to work in the field as she collects the leavings. What he's doing is he's ensuring that no one inhibits her. You have to understand, workers in the field, like these reapers, they can sometimes compete with one another for the best place in the field as they go about their work. Remember, just like guys and gals today going to work, you want to be sure that as you go about your work, you're seen to be a good worker because there's something in it for you, right? You like to impress the boss. Well, if you're trying to get your job done and some widow keeps getting in your way, it's going to suddenly become an issue that this person is no longer your friend, right? That worker could simply find the presence of a woman beggar like Ruth to be a nuisance. And then you might insult her. You might even give her a little kick with your leg. You might push her down out of the way. I mean, if this surprises you, then you haven't seen how men in the field work quite often. So Boaz ensures that the servants know that Ruth has equal right to be in the field. that They must not insult her or get in her way. But then he goes a step further. He begins to give her advantage in her work. The next thing he says is, that she can glean anywhere. Remember the law that we looked at a few weeks ago, the law of Israel that provided a way for widows to supply themselves with grain, that law in Deuteronomy that said that they could effectively have the leftovers. Remember this? That they could go through the field gleaning, but they were to pick up the things that had been left over laying on the ground after the reapers had gone through a certain section of the field. Or they could have the corners. You remember the, the standing grain in the corners. Think about how that actually had to work for the ladies that did this work, though. I mean, the process. They would have to have worked pretty hard to find the scraps that were left over. Just to get enough food, even for just one day, you know, they're bending over all day in the sun, picking through whatever's left. Oh, there's a stock. Oh, oh, there's a stock. I mean, think about how hard that is. It's like looking for a four-leaf clover all day long on the ground. And on top of it, you're competing with other widows who are looking for the same thing, right? It's like an extreme Easter egg hunt, only the loser here has the risk of starvation. This is not a game. That's what's normal for someone in her circumstances. But for Ruth, Boaz tells his servants, 
This lady is welcome to glean in the standing grain. That's even before the reapers would have gone after it themselves, where it's easy to get them, where you can see them. You don't even have to bend over. Obviously, it's going to be a lot easier for her that way. Now, I think that she probably would have had some difficulty even thinking to do this very thing because it's against the rules. So what I assume must have happened is these instructions to the servants aren't merely don't stop her. I suspect that they're an encouragement to the reapers that they would invite her into the grain and direct her to do so because I don't think she would naturally have taken it upon herself anyway. That would have been a dishonest thing to do on her part had she not been given the right. So she's guaranteed now to find success and plenty of it. And that's the point. That's why he's doing this. Boaz is fulfilling his promise to provide for her and to secure her rest. In a sense, you could say that Boaz is doing her work for her. Or at the very least, he's made her work far easier in the way that he's set the rules up. But what's really interesting about what he's doing here is from Ruth's perspective, from what she will see and experience in the field, she's putting in time, she's putting in effort, she's working hard, And she's getting a reward for her work. In reality, she's being carried along by Boaz's kindness, experiencing a degree of success that is far beyond her normal abilities under those circumstances. But Boaz has taken away her worry. Boaz has taken away all her uncertainty, all her fear. You know, when you go out for something like this, you're hoping you find what you need for the day. You're not sure what's waiting for you. But for her, day after day, she's coming home with this bounty. I mean, Ruth is still working. But she just finds her work so easy and the rewards of her work even greater than she could have imagined and that removes all the fear of failure. Boaz is blessing Ruth behind the scenes, making accommodations without taking away Ruth's dignity in the work and, for that matter, taking away her need to work. But what a joy it will be in the work. She's going to go out into the field with this great expectation every day. And if that weren't enough, Boaz goes a step further. He instructs his servants... And this is the part I really love. He tells the servants, I want you to purposely pull out some of the grain that you've already cut down, you've already collected, and you've bound into the sheaves that you're supposed to then carry in and deliver, right? After that, then go in and just pull a few out and throw them on the ground right before she turns the corner and sees them laying there. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, once again, he's going beyond anything required to assist Ruth in the gathering. And yet, again, he's doing it without leading her to feel uncomfortable because of his charity. So each day, and this goes on for about six weeks, we'll find out here in a minute. Each day for about six weeks, Ruth is going out into Boaz's field. And every day she's enjoying this bountiful harvest. It would be like a fisherman going out to fish every day, day after day. And it doesn't matter where you drop your lure doesn't matter what would normally be expected. You just throw it in the water and immediately you've got a catch. Everywhere. Can you imagine fishing like this? Right? Every day. Not just one time. You don't, everyone's got that magical one-time experience if you fish. But for every one of those days, you've got a hundred where you come in, nothing else. I, I heard a great phrase one time that said, there's a fine line between fishing and sitting on the bank looking like an idiot. It's a fine line. And in this case, she's going out every day like a fisherman that catches the bounty every day. I wonder if she ever thought how it was so easy. You know, if he's doing it well, and it appears as though he's gone out of his way to do this in a particular fashion, I suspect she never quite figures out why it's so easy. It just appears as though she's the most talented widow reaper that's ever lived, or her luck just won't give. 
or I'm assuming it's a godly woman, she's crediting it to God, but the practical outworking of it, how did it actually happen? I'm not sure she ever would have known, which is intentional on Boaz's part. Now, put yourself in her mindset as you get up one morning in that middle of that six-week period. What's your thought? Are you looking forward to the day? You have reason to get out in the field? You think there's something waiting for you that day? Wouldn't you look forward to your work? Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that in a hot day, working out in the field, it's not easy. As I'm sure the work was still hard at times, certainly. But when something's rewarding, the difficulty of it doesn't impinge on your joy. Hear that again. When something is rewarding, the difficulty of it doesn't impinge on your joy. And I think that's a concept that's lost in the world. The world thinks that when something's easy, it's more joyful. Kids think this. When something's easy, it's more joyful. Dad, just give me the money. Why do I have to work for it? We've learned, if we're an adult, or if we're certainly counseled by Scripture, that the joy of something is not determined by the ease of it. It's determined by the reward of it. And in fact, sometimes the harder you work for something, with a reward at the end, the more you value it. In fact, if not always. And in this case, each day brought its own reward. We remember last week how Boaz, we said, pictured the Lord in this story, Christ, and that his call upon Ruth to work in his field, as opposed to simply giving her charity, was a picture of the Lord calling us, the disciples of Christ, to work in service to him. And here again you see that picture filled out just another step. That is, what is it like to serve Christ? What is it like to work in his field? That is, you know, Ruth's work in the field is a picture of the church working to serve the Lord who bought us and brought us into a relationship through his covenant. He calls us all to serve him and he told us that the work will be easy and joyful. My yoke is light, Jesus said. Ruth, in her case, she saw her work achieving these unexpected results of bounty And she saw it while serving in the field that Boaz, her master, had directed her to serve in. And so it will be for us in serving the Lord. You and I, as we're called to serve the Lord, to make Christ's priorities our priorities, the work in that field, rather than working in some other field, as Boaz said to Ruth, that is to say, instead of working in the world's fields, work in his field, stay there, don't wander off like he told Ruth. If you do that, if you devote yourselves to that pursuit, it's not to say the work won't be hard. It's to say that it will be light. And those are not the same thing. It's not to say that it won't be work, but it will be joyful. Just to be specific, what kind of work are we talking about here? Because I think sometimes we might think too narrowly about this. We're not talking just about those who work in full-time ministry or missionaries or even church volunteers. Those are, I guess, sort of the obvious examples. And they count, but they're hardly the extent of it. We're also talking about the mother who serves Christ in the home by sacrificing other desires in life for that particular goal. Or the father who serves Christ in leading their family, sacrificially making time available to that need as opposed to other things in their career or elsewhere. Or godly children representing Christ in their schools despite the persecution or ostracizing effect that it might have in their life. And in general, godly men and women representing Christ in all levels of society, funding ministries with their personal resources, praying for the needs of others, giving time and attention to those who are lonely or hurting or in need, serving the work of the Lord as He assigns it to us rather than serving the needs of the world. We don't have time today to list all the examples that would be included in that concept, but you probably have plenty you can make for yourself. But here's the key. As you do that work, the Lord is ahead of you. 
He's preparing the field to ensure that you're going to reap some kind of harvest in the process of what you do for Him. He is literally instructing His servants to go ahead of us and help us. Just as Boaz's servants followed Ruth around, made her work easier, put things in her path, and so on, the Lord is doing exactly the same thing for us. And you might ask, well, what servants am I talking about? Who's doing this work for us in the field? Who does Jesus have following us? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that the Lord's angels, the angelic realm, were created specifically for this purpose. He says in Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You know, for all of the Hallmark card theology that surrounds the idea of angels, this concept biblically is the one sure place you can put your understanding when you think of what angels are for. They're not merely there so that you have something pretty to hang on your tree at Christmas. Angels are ministering spirits. In other words, God created a little army for himself of spirits whose purpose in existence was you. You and I, the saints who were, it says here, to inherit salvation. And what way are they ministering to us? Well, I'm not saying I know all the ways, but I can tell you one of them. One of them is that the angelic realm works behind the scenes to make sure our work is productive and easy. And in what respect do they do that work? Well, again, I think there's a degree of mystery there so that we don't think ourselves too wise about what God does. But we can make some safe bets. You know, there's a warfare that takes place constantly in the spirit realm between those enemies of God and the demonic realm and those angels of God that have remained faithful. And it centers on us. It centers on what the angels are trying to do to support us while the demons are trying to do something to inhibit us in service to Christ. So it's all directed ultimately at God's glory, but through us. We're a means to that end. And as you and I go out to serve in the field, we're not out there alone. The spirit in us is principally where God is at work. We know that. But it doesn't stop there. You have the angelic realm doing what they can to make our work lighter and easier. And if you haven't worked much in this field I'm talking about, if you haven't served Christ in some realm of life, then you probably haven't experienced this. But try them. You can't see them, and you can't see even how they work, but you will see the results of their presence in your life when you serve Christ. When you step out and you do something Christ asked you to do, when you make a commitment to follow His Word, or when you take on some new challenge, or stand firm in some temptation, expect Him to show up through the Spirit, but also through His angels. This is where I think the comparison to Ruth is so interesting. Ruth could not have told you where the support was coming from. Ruth probably could not have pointed to the reapers and say, I've been watching you guys, I see what you're doing. But what's happening around her is self-evident. I have seen this in my own experience, where I go out to do something that I am sure is going to fail because I have no clue what I'm doing, and I don't feel adequately prepared, and I don't even know what's coming. And something comes out of it that I could never have guessed. And I don't know if that's the Spirit of God... If it's the angels of God, all of the above, it doesn't really matter. It's proof to me that sometimes life is less about your ability and more about your availability. Show up and watch what God will do in the work that he's given to us. Because he didn't send you out to fail, not fundamentally. I'm not saying he won't give you a setback for trial or for testing your heart. But in the big scheme of things, he didn't set us out to fail. Expect him to show up. You will not see the help coming before you step out. Ruth would never have seen the grain on the ground if she was not out looking for it. It's just a fundamental fact. 
So as God may choose to work through us, do not sit back in your current state of life and say to yourself, well, as soon as I see that God's positioned everything I need, then I can step out and take advantage of it. You'll be waiting forever. I'm I'm living proof of that. Every time I take a step of faith in some new direction, I see God show up. And all the time I spent before I took the step was really worry about whether God would show up or not. How much time was wasted doing that? It's just the nature of how we tend to think. That's why the Bible calls it faith. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Like Ruth, there's no gathering unless you enter the field. And the other thing you miss, and I remember this lesson distinctly from a friend of mine who was a full-time missionary, and in some of the trials he had to put up with on the field, some of the deprivation, some of the uncertainty, and all that comes with being on the field in the way that he was, I remember him telling me, you know, you won't see God do miracles until you put yourself in a position where you need a miracle. And it sounded very glib, but then when you see the examples that he cites, you realize, man, I would love to see God show up like that in my life. What a story that is. What an encouragement that is. He goes, yeah, exactly. I've had hundreds of those. But I never had any of them back in Dallas. Just that's where he happened to be from. I'm not pointing fingers at Dallas. I'm just saying he was in the middle of a modern America metropolis and roll with the normal everyday rhythm of life. But then he gets to Kenya in this case. And didn't know where his next meal was coming from sometimes. And crazy things started to happen to help him get where he needed to be. And you started to realize, God is big. Bigger than I realized. And we can see the impact of Boaz's grace on Ruth in this way. In just the first day of the harvest. In verse 17, Ruth collects an ephah, which is an ancient term, an ephah of grain. Now just to give you an idea, an ephah is roughly a bushel of grain or about 35 liters of grain. That's about 46 pounds of grain. We're not talking about 46 pounds with stocks and everything. We're talking just the seeds. How many of you can lift 46 pounds dead weight? I think she probably collected only an ephah because that's about the limit of what she could carry home. I can't tell you what the average widow would normally collect under average circumstances in the field, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot less than 46 pounds, right? So you know Naomi is stunned to see this showing up when Ruth comes back to her on that second day and brings her that first day's worth of of grain. I mean, Naomi had probably been back there by herself praying that, oh Lord, please let Ruth show up with just enough grain that we can get through one meal together, right? What she gets instead is enough food probably to feed them for close to a month. And on top of that, she gets boiled grain left over from the previous night. So not only does Naomi get the immediate security, or at least a sense of security over all of this grain, but she also gets an immediate joy of food. I mean, if you're hungry, that, that means a lot in the moment. So Ruth has fulfilled her pledge that she made to Naomi back in Moab, that wherever you go, I will go, and I will be there with your people, which was effectively of saying, I'm here to take care of you, Naomi. I'm not going to abandon you. She's fulfilled that pledge tonight. And that's true because Boaz has a relationship with Naomi, and as a result, entered into a covenant with Ruth. And so you could say Boaz was the means to which both women receive a blessing. Ruth gets her protection and provision and privilege, and that transfers into Naomi through Ruth. And then, of course, we see Naomi's reaction. Verse 19, her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. 
So Naomi asks the obvious questions. Naomi understood immediately that you don't get 46 pounds of grain doing the normal widow work in the field, right? Which is why she adds that other part of the question, who, who did this to you or made this possible? Because it didn't happen on its own. And that leads Ruth to tell the whole story. And when she reveals the name of the man, Boaz, instantly, I suspect Naomi's eyes just went, wow, because she knew that name. This is the name of one of her family members, somebody in, in the family of her husband. What's Naomi's first response? Notice, it's not to praise Boaz. It may read that way to you at first, but look at the words more carefully. Naomi responds by praising the Lord. She says, may the Lord be blessed, and then may he bless Boaz as well for what he has done. And then Naomi praises the Lord saying this, the Lord has not withdrawn his kindness from the living and the dead. Now, you might think at first she's thinking about the dead husband, the dead brother, and I think perhaps in part that's implied, but it's more specific than that. I believe it means the living and the dead referring to these two women. And what do I mean by that? Well, the living would refer to Ruth, and the dead would refer to Naomi. Ruth is living in the sense that she has a living womb. That is to say, she is still young enough to produce children. And the reason that's so key in this case is the producing of children was a woman's lifeline in these days. An eligible woman, eligible to marry, who could produce children was likely to find a husband. And that's the situation for Ruth. And by the making of children, having a posterity in that sense, that's really tied to the future of that woman's life. In that sense, Ruth is the living because she can bring life into the world and in being able to do so, that's her ticket to having someone care for her and have the protection it brings. But by the same token, Naomi then would be the dead. She's past childbearing years and therefore she knows she has zero prospects of ever being married again. No man would take her as a wife under normal circumstances because there'd be nothing in it for him. And I know that sounds callous, but that's in, in a world of this type, the producing of children, the, the, the growing of a family and all that it brought was an essential aspect of what marriage was accomplishing in the life of anybody. And so she would have been more vulnerable, more desperate than Ruth. So here she is thinking, well, Ruth might have a chance, but I've got no chance. And then this shows up on her doorstep and she sees the hand of God. And she realizes God didn't forget me. He's still working through Ruth for me. He's supporting the living and the dead. And that's in a great encouragement. This, all, this is all more credit to Boaz, by the way. It's obvious that Boaz has some interest in Ruth, and it would be obvious why. But he extended his kindness well past her toward Naomi. That's probably part of the reason why he made sure Ruth could collect so much. And it says he's truly desiring to do the Lord's work of showing mercy and kindness. Remember, we talked at one point in the past about James, and he says true religion in the eyes of God is that we would care for widows and orphans. Remember that? out of James, and that whole phrase simply says that you'll know when you're looking at someone who's working truly for the needs of the Lord and not for some selfish motive, when they serve the least in our society, those who could never pay it back, either in money or in honor or in advantage somewhere. I mean, you help an orphan, you help a widow, at least in this culture, and that gains you nothing, because they had nothing. You would only have done it because of a love for God. And similarly, Boaz is serving... Naomi threw Ruth because of his love for God. Naomi tells Ruth at the end of verse 20, Boaz is one of our closest relatives. And that leads Ruth to tell Naomi more of the story. Verse 21, Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, 
It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, so that others may not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth says to Naomi that Boaz has instructed her, I'm only supposed to collect in his field until the end of the harvest. Now normally, that would be a very bad strategy. I mean, if all else was equal, you, you pick one of those fields clean, there's not much left, you move on, right? But she's saying to Naomi, this is what I've been told, and I think she's asking with this uh, expectation that Naomi would tell her, is this good? Is this not good? To which Naomi gives probably the most obvious answer that any mother-in-law has ever given to her daughter-in-law, right? Yeah, you should stay there. That sounds like a good deal. You had 46 pounds of grain in one day. Stay there. And then she gives the second reason as well, which, which is probably more the, the point. She says, this is going to be a protection for you because I don't want you wandering off into other property. Remember, this is still the time of judges, friends. Remember? You remember the story of what happened to the concubine who was abused by all the Benjamites? All right? Keep that in the back of your mind. That's the times they're living in. Historically, women have always been victimized by bad men. But apparently in this time of Israel, such abuse could be especially bad and maybe even common. So she's saying, look, that was my first concern for you. We found someone who will be nice to us. Stay there. That's a good thing. So Ruth stays close to Boaz throughout the barley harvest, it says, and up until the next harvest, which is the wheat harvest. Now, the barley harvest happens in the springtime. We said last week, around Passover. And wheat is harvested about six weeks later, kind of in the middle of the summer. So Ruth works in the field for about a season or so, a season of harvesting, if you will, up until the second harvest time, that is, of, of the wheat. And all that while she stays, it says, with her mother-in-law. So what I'm assuming must have happened is Naomi found her way back to her ancestral property, Elimelech's property. Now, the land hasn't been farmed for 10 years, so there's nothing going on with the land. But I have to assume some of the homes are still standing, there's structure. So there's something there for her that she can live in. So she's doing that. And every day, Ruth goes out to earn the living for the two of them in Boaz's field. And that living, that work, has enough grain coming in, clearly enough for them to live on. But beyond that, it must have been a source of income for them. You, know, you sell what you didn't eat, and that became money for other things. So for a season, Ruth has this joy of working in Boaz's field. For a season, she's blessed. And during that same season, Naomi is blessed as well, but at a distance. But friends, you know, the harvest doesn't go on forever. Right? This is a great time. But at some point, the harvest is over. And so Naomi is probably foreseeing this coming end of the harvest, and she realizes, well, when it draws to a close, what's going to happen next to me? I mean, Ruth has got the covenant. Good for her. What about me? So I suspect that maybe that's the motivation for what she begins to do next. She begins to plan for something between Boaz and Ruth, and it centers on this fact that Boaz is a kinsman. We'll go just a little further today in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourselves therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor and do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say, I will do. So Naomi begins by telling Ruth, Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? What she's talking about here, of course, is getting a husband for Ruth. 
This is a twofold strategy on Naomi's part. She wants Ruth to have the security that, at least in this day and age, only a husband could provide for a woman. And so she's essentially implying, look, it's too late for me, but that's no reason for you to sit here and be a widow with me. You can have this. We should work on, a, on getting that for you. But I think secondly, and this is not to disparage Naomi whatsoever, I think she's also looking to obtain some security for Ruth because that's ultimately her means to security as well. That if one of them can land a husband, both of them certainly are going to be benefiting. So Naomi says to Ruth, you know, Boaz is our kinsman. Now I've been alluding to the meaning of this phrase for some time, the significance of the term kinsman. You remember I told you it doesn't just mean relative, it's actually a legal term. And so let's understand what this term means. It comes out of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy Chapter 25, the law provides another mercy for a widow, not just the one of providing food and the grain of the field, but it also provided that the woman who would be widowed without an heir, without a son, could yet have another try, another chance at obtaining what they did not get the first time. It's a law that ensured a posterity for tribes so that families within tribes wouldn't die out. And here's what we read, just two verses. Deuteronomy 25, 5-6. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, it goes on from there to explain more of what would happen. We'll get into what follows in that same passage of Deuteronomy in future chapters. But for now, if a married man dies before he produces a male heir, his widow, the widow of that dead man, is given the means to ensure that the man's family name continues on. And the law required that the unmarried brother of that dead man in the family would take his widow as a wife. So if you were the brother of a man who died and had a wife with no kids, guess what? Your wife was picked for you. You would marry his widow. And then the first son that comes out of that marriage would then be technically, legally considered the offspring of the dead man as if he had had a son. And then when that son becomes an adult, he inherits the estate of the deceased father and he continues on the father's name. In that way, that name never dies out as it would have otherwise. Now, the purpose of the law was twofold. First, it provided a second chance for that widowed woman to have the security and rest of a husband and a son. Secondly, it ensured that the dead man's family name wasn't cut off, as I've said. So the name of the man was literally given to the son of that deceased brother's widow. Now, that brother, this one we keep talking about who has to step into the gap and marry the widow, that man is called a kinsman. That's where the term comes from. It's not just any old relative. It's literally the name you assigned to whoever was next in line to marry that widow. So if somebody said, you're the kinsman, basically they're saying, you have to do what's right according to law. That's Ruth's situation. Ruth was a Gentile woman, yes, but she married a Jewish man, and as such she became essentially a Jewish widow at that point, but without a son. And as such, she has to be redeemed by the brother of the deceased husband. The problem in her case, though, is what? The brother is also dead. Remember, they both died while they were in Moab. So now what? Well, the law requires the nearest unmarried male relative in the family would pick up the duty. We just keep going down the line until we find one. 
And I think Naomi is thinking of this very requirement on this particular evening near the end of the barley harvest. And she tells Ruth, gives her this womanly advice of how she needs to help further this process along a little bit and trigger Boaz to do the right thing by Ruth. And when we come back to the study next time, we're going to look at Naomi's advice what Naomi is expecting to see happen here, and what will then result should it happen. And we're going to explore all of the prophetic significance of these matters. All right, So we're going to end at this point. As I said, we have a long break coming from this study. I hope I've left you with a bit of a cliffhanger, the story I did anyway. And hopefully you see some of where we're going already. Perhaps you're starting to be able to pick up on the prophetic pieces yourself. And when we come back, we'll certainly explore all of that. And if you forget what we've done, you have it online. Go listen to it. And I'll see you again on August 28th. All right, let's go to prayer. Dear Father, watch over Oak Hill Bible Church, Father. It's um, certainly not a place that depends on me. You've always been the one, Father, to shepherd your church. Each of us take a turn, perhaps, in, in um, serving you as under-shepherds, but it is never the case, Father, that a church is outside your care. And the Lord is leading us every day. Um, but nonetheless, Father, I, I thank you for... Uh, for giving me a chance to go and teach in other places while you bring others here, Father, to serve the needs in this place. I pray, Father, that uh, those who come would be blessed with wisdom and insight. Those who come to hear them, Father, would receive it as such, and your will would be done through all these things. And thank you again, Father, for the beautiful story of Ruth and the reminder that we work in a field that you've prepared, and we do it, Father, in joy, knowing that the results are in your hands. Let us continue in that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.